if your manuscript gets agented and sold to a, a publishing house, they're going to have their own editors and copy editors and proofreaders. So your goal at that point is to get it sellable. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one muddled and confused word at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. You squeezed that right in there. We were talking about, I was talking about being muddled and confused today and uh, made a joke about putting it into into the intro, and, and Taylor nailed it. And for those of you who are just listening and don't see the screen that I'm seeing, you're probably saying to yourself, there's no video because Taylor nailed that intro, and you would be right. (laughs) Are you ever going to leave me alone about that? (laughs) No, because it's kind of fun. All right, we we have chit-chat this week. We haven't had chit-chat for the last couple of weeks. What's going on? What did you do? (laughs) Well, um, funny thing you should ask, Steve. Um, (laughs) Right now, the State Fair of Texas is going on, and it takes place here in Dallas. And I have, I went, haven't been, I didn't go last year. And this year, I was like, okay, we'll go. And this, the fair takes place in this. Um, it's called Fair Park, and it's all kinds of huge buildings, enormous buildings. That some of them sit empty year round. Some of them are museums and um, historical type things. There's an aquarium, some other stuff. And so this year we went into the museum. I uh, hadn't been in there for several years. And, you know, it's just like a war memorial, lots of stuff about World War One, And, you know, I love museums and history and stuff. But off to the wing on one side, they had a, a display of cartoons from a local, uh, I guess, cartoonist who worked for the Dallas Morning News from 1906 to 1950-something. His name was John Knott. And so, you know, went in there, wasn't really, didn't know what I was getting into, walked through, started reading. I I read every single cartoon that they had blown up and displayed along the walls. There had to be some 50 of them. And they were fascinating because reading them, and and some of them I didn't get 100%, but some of them were so easy to understand. Nothing has changed (laughs) in a hundred years. The same issues, the same um, p- political arguments. I mean, there was even one about Puerto Rico. And um, <laughs> I mean, every, I, I was just mind blown. And over and over, I was going, nothing's freaking changed. It, it, this, you could print this in a paper today and it would still make exactly the same amount of sense. Just, it, I, I was so blown by it. I bet the hairstyles are different though. Hairstyles, cars, clothing, all that stuff was different. But the text, the the di- you know, the, the interaction between the characters and stuff. And they, obviously you don't have people marching for women's right to vote anymore. But the wording on it could still be applied to some of the same issues that we're looking at today. I mean, just there was hardly one out of the 50 or so, maybe there was more than 50, I don't know, that couldn't be applied to modern day issues. And that surprised you, which surprised, it surprises me that it surprised you. 
because you're a you're a very aware person. You have a, a sense of of history. Um, so, it, what, what's your worldview now? Are, are, when you look around, do you think these are the best of times, or do you think these are the worst of times, or what do you think? I don't have any context for that best of times or worst of times, and I suppose that's why these cartoons surprise me is because my understanding of politics and political history having i don't have the physical the the book education and i don't have the life experience either it started when i was about mid-30s so i really don't have that stretch of time that many people have where they look back and they go oh i remember when because my remember when is so muddled by my the, the environment that I was raised in, and they, they took everything and twisted world events. And it, so it's just sort of like starting from a certain point and moving backwards. None of that is real. It doesn't exist because my, my context for it is, is completely insular and, and twisted. So I really only have from like, I don't know, maybe the second George Bush election um, onward to, as, as a frame of reference. And, and in Dallas, you know, I, I've lived here pretty much my entire time of, of being back in the United States, but I'm only, I've only really been aware of Dallas politics and all of that for maybe five or six years, because before that, I was just too busy trying to survive, you know? Mm -hmm. So to walk these walls and, you know, you're getting the national politics, but there's also real local politics and you see cities names that you're familiar with and, you know, Dallas has expanded exponentially in these hundred years. Um, we were not a big city back then. You know, Waco was bigger than we were. And, you know, it was just seeing the you could see the city arguments and the, 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 the planners and, you know, people against the government, all this type of stuff. And I was just like, oh, my God, it's all exactly <laughs> the same. Even the names are the same. I remember... It can't be that long ago, but it was long enough ago that it feels like it was a while ago. But I was listening to a podcast. So, I mean, that dates it a little bit. I, I've, I've been listening to podcasts since the early days of Adam Carolla doing podcasts. So I, I can't really pinpoint it. But someone did a very in-depth series of podcasts on the election where Abraham Lincoln was elected president. And they talked about the debates, you know, the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates and just the the backstabbing that went on during the campaign. And as I was listening to that, I was thinking the same thing that you thought while you were in that exhibit looking at looking. I mean, it that's that was that long ago and nothing has changed. It's still exactly the same. And we all think that when we see this for the first time, it's the first time it's ever happened, but it's been happening, you know, way back, you know, in, in ancient civilizations. I expect it was much the same. It's the same arguments. The sa uh, I, I, I just, uh, I wish there was a way that I could get those pictures and post them, share them, because it was so, I mean, I know... For me, so much of the world is still new, and I discover something, everyone's like, yeah, we've known about that for 50 years, hello. <laughs> but it's just like, oh, my God, you guys, you have to see this. You have to see this. So I don't know. If you if you live in Dallas or, or in the area, it might be worth stopping by. I think the museum, I, don't, I would assume the museum is open year-round, even though even when the fair is over. 
I would be willing to bet that that some of this gentleman's work is online somewhere. You said his name was John Knott? Yes, K-N-O-T-T. And I'm really bad with names, and I had to actually stand there and stare at his name to remember it. And I was like, okay, Knott's Berry Farm. That's how I'm going to remember this. That's pretty good. So for anybody who's listening, that's how you can remember it. All right. Well, I'm going to to see if I can find anything, and if I do, I'll, I'll put one of them in the show notes. It might not be anything that's that that you might have noticed or seen inside there, but it might be if I can find something of his, I'll I'll put it in there. And the internet has everything. So it's got to be out there somewhere, right? Somewhere. Yes, somewhere. We have a listener question today. And that's what we're going to be talking about. I should have said that earlier, but I didn't. So here's our fancy music. It's not actually music. It's just I don't know what it is, but it's like a little thing. And um, you want to read the question? Okay. So this comes to us from James. It was sent to me by email. And he says, about my current nonfiction book project, please, at what time should I consider the book fit enough to be sent to a professional editor to do his part of the job? My initial draft is complete, but I always see the reason to rewrite every time I read it. I start to feel like I'm going around in circles and wasting the time I could use for other projects. Part of me is saying the draft is good enough to be sent to a professional editor, but the other part of me is saying the write-up isn't flowing enough to need modification. And needs is, modification. And needs modification, my bad, sorry. Um, is it the job of the proofreader to make the job flow, or is that my job? There's a lot in that question. Yes. So where do you want to start? In so much of the answers that I give, it always goes back to what's your purpose in writing the book? Like, what's your end game? For somebody who wants to self-publish, the answers are so different from somebody who wants to traditionally publish. And I don't know the answer to that question here, so I'm just going to kind of try and tackle it both ways. The job of getting the book to flow really falls on the author to get it as good as you can get it. But there comes a point where you've done the best you can and you can't do any more. But we all have, we are all at different points in that. So for what one person's best, it could be good enough to skip a proofreader or a professional editor and go straight to submission. And for somebody else, it could be at the level where a proofreader or editor doesn't want to touch it because it still needs so much work. But you can only do what you can do. And when you reach the level where you can't get it any better, then you have to go for help. That's that's kind of the only option that you have. But one important thing to note here is that we're discussing nonfiction. And fiction and nonfiction are very different in that way. And nonfiction is not all the same because a memoir is going to be very different than a how-to book or a guide to something. So in nonfiction, you've got narrative nonfiction, which is, even though it's not fiction, it's sort of told narratively like fiction would be. And it reads like fiction with that same character arc and the, and the the tension and the conflict and and all of that, it's all in there. That's what drives narrative nonfiction. But nonfiction itself, like non-narrative nonfiction, it is more making sure that all the concepts and the ideas flow logically one to the next, and it's more about structure and the content within that structure. So 
getting it that to, to that point is going to be different in in both. And, and the person who, if you're going for help, for professional help, you're going to need a different kind of editor, a different kind of proofreader. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is that there's a really big difference between a proofreader, a copy editor, and an editor. And this question, and there's a, a second question that follows, they kind of mix all of those concepts together. So I just want to clear them out, clear, clear them out for us here. Um, a proofreader, in, it's my understanding that a proofreader is really someone who goes over more of a finalized draft after it's already been copy edited and edited. And they're looking for final mistakes. They're looking for things that have slipped the process. They're not proofing it before it's been through that process. It's like a final few pairs of eyes to go over it. So that's something that happens when you're just about ready to hit the button on publish. And, and to just interrupt whatever. for a second, that's not the person that you would look to for to correct flow issues. That's just someone no. who's looking for the kind of mistakes that you just don't see because you've read the manuscript 117 times yourself already. Exactly. And it would be wasted that their time and energy would be wasted, even if it's just your neighbor or a friend. If if the actual structure and text of the book isn't ready, well, then they're wasting their time proofreading because you still have so much work that's going to be done on it. So it's kind of a cart before the horse thing. A copy editor is someone who goes in and cleans up the grammar and the punctuation and fact does some small fact checking. And that's usually what people think of when they think, oh, I need someone to edit my book. They're thinking of a copy editor, somebody to clean it up, make sure that it reads correctly. But even copy editors don't rewrite the book for you. That's just too much heavy lifting they, they might restructure a few sentences or make some suggested word changes and, and do some light line editing. But generally speaking, they're working on punctuation, grammar, con continuity. Uh, they'll, they'll point out, oh, well, you said this on page 47, but now you're saying it over here on page 82. Which one of these is correct? That type of thing. An editor is looking at the big picture. That's someone who, in nonfiction, in narrative nonfiction, they're going to be doing sort of the same job as an editor who does fiction, where they're looking at it for the character arc, the plot, the, the pacing, where things fall off, maybe where something needs to be beefed up because there's not enough story there, places where it needs to be cut because the story drags on too long. I don't know as much about non-narrative nonfiction. Um, I don't know how editors work in those situations, but I would imagine that because they are sort of book doctors, they're going to be looking at it on the whole as well. Does this actually get the point across? Is there Are there aspects of this um, how-to or whatever it is that's teaching that feel confusing? Are there places that it's been left off that um, someone's going to, we need to fill in this and, and add a few more chapters here. We need to discuss this other other subject or what have you. So if I had a manuscript that 
I had done the best that I could with, my first step would be to send it to beta readers. And beta readers are those who, people you trust. If you're working with nonfiction, they have to be people that are familiar with the subject matter, but not necessarily experts, people who are more like your audience who would be reading it and get their feedback. And the thing about beta readers is that they can feel like their job is to be copy editors and proofreaders. Oh, you missed a, there's a typo over here. There's a comma missing over here. And that's helpful. I mean, great, thanks. Take note of it. But what you're really looking for, and you have to convey this to them, is I'm looking for what doesn't make sense. I'm looking for what you enjoyed the most. I'm looking for how you feel this book would appeal to you if you, would you have bought it? Would you have recommended it? If not, why not? What can I do to improve it? That type of like big picture story arc um, improvement to get a feel for how others are responding to it. Because when you have one thing in mind when you're writing your book, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to convey that properly. Lots of stuff gets missed. Even if you've been at it for years and years, lots of stuff gets missed in that, that translation between author's brain to the page. And so that the, your beta readers are the ones who are going to sort of catch that, the, the, the big problems first. And then you work it over again. And when you've got that to where you think that it's as good as you can get it, if you have an opportunity to go for round two, go for round two and send it out again. Get it to where the feedback is coming back at you that your audience feels like, yeah, this book is good. It's ready. That's when you need to make the decision of whether you want to take it to an editor and actually pay the money for someone to book doctor it or skip that process and go to a copy editor. Now, it's different when you're trying to get it to a publisher and when you're going to self-publish it. Because if your manuscript gets agented and sold to a, a publishing house, they're going to have their own editors and copy editors and proofreaders. So your goal at that point is to get it sellable. And is it worth having an editor, paying out of pocket for an editor or copy editor, it depends on you. It depends on your skill level. It depends on the, the feedback you've been getting from those who've willing to give you honest feedback about your work. And if you know that you're weak and not you, like in turn in like the technical details of, you know, grammar and punctuation, then you might want to hire out someone to, to give it a look over. I'm really weak in, in punctuation. My grammar's decent enough, but, you know, punctuation for me is just awful. But my book, my manuscript sold punctuations and all, punctuation errors riddled with punctuation errors and all. I mean, like embarrassing stuff now that I'm like, oh my God, you know, oh, so you're saying that that's how that works with quotation marks and paragraphs and whatever? Um, but at the same time, my editor on the first book told me it was one of the cleanest manuscripts she'd ever received. So that should give you an idea of how the condition that some books are in when they get submitted. So it, it, but if you feel that it's just not strong enough and you're not putting your best foot forward, or if you're not getting, if you've tried submitting to agents and you keep getting turned down, for example, then 
you probably want to go pay somebody to have a look at it and see what's not working and is it salvageable or whatever. If you're planning to self-publish, then you really don't have an option. You have to have a copy editor. You have to have proofreaders. The editor part is, you know, it's up for debate. Personally, I would never put a book out without having had an editor slash book doctor work with me on it. Because even when you've, you know what you're doing and you've been at this a long time, I guess maybe you realize how much you don't know and, and you realize how much help it is to have that collaboration with somebody whose sole focus is looking at it with a fresh pair of eyes and dissecting it clinically. So that's, that's my sort of overview take on the subject. All right. Let, let me jump in with just some general business type things. This is a nonfiction book. Um, in, in looking at the email message, it looks like it, it would be categorized as a self-help book. Okay. And with this kind of a book, if, if you're an author, it's not the kind of thing that you're just going to be able to publish it and people will flock to you um, because there are a lot of this type of book out there. Um, if I, I have a friend who's doing something like this. It's in a completely different area, but he's, and he's in a different stage. Um, he's about halfway through the book. He has incredible depth of knowledge uh, in, in his subject, and he's having a hard time getting it, getting it all down in a way that's not so dense that it's unreadable. And, I relate to that. Yeah. What I suggested to him, and I've seen this work before, is, is a combination of sanity checking the idea and audience building, which is putting some of the material out on the web as blog posts. So set up a, I mean, let, let's say you're, you're writing your, your nonfiction book on how to train your goldfish to talk. And so you come up with a clever name for the blog and you just start, you don't put the whole book out there, but you put some of the ideas out there to see what will resonate with people and just keep doing it week after week or even day after day after day. And then you'll get a sense that, wow, you know, when I, when I am talking about, I'm drawing a, a complete blank on, on, on chapters for getting your goldfish to, to speak. Uh, let, let's say it's getting your goldfish to speak French. And, you know, when you're talking about training yourself to speak French so that you can teach the goldfish, that chapter or those blog posts get a lot of comments. That, then you know that's something that people are really interested in. That's something that you can use to help to market the book. And you see over and over again with successful nonfiction books, the people that are publishing them, whether they are traditionally published or self-published, the first thing they did was to build an audience. And then they just deliver their book to their audience. And if you're self-published and you're delivering a book to an existing audience, uh, it automatically sells enough at the beginning so that Amazon says, wow, this is a great book, and it, it shows it to more people. It's, it's a powerful tool, and it's what I would do if I didn't have an audience and I was writing a nonfiction book. I agree with you on that. And so I'm going to um, like daisy trail a little bit away from that to talk about um, platform, which is something that a lot of beginning authors struggle with. They're like, can I get a book published if I don't have a platform? And 
platform basically is just industry speak for how many people do you know who already like what you have to say who would buy your book if it was available. And for non for fiction, platform really doesn't matter. I mean, granted, if you're a celebrity and you publish a novel, I put publish in quotes, if somebody else ghostwrites your novel and slaps your name on it, um, then you're going to sell a lot of copies just because you have already have an enormous platform. But for the most part, other outside of those types of, you know, celebrity type situations, when it comes to platform for fiction, it doesn't matter. You can sell a bazillion copies with no platform if it's, you know, if it just happens to resonate. But with nonfiction, platform is incredibly important. The only reason people will buy a nonfiction book is because of the expertise of the person who's writing it. And if you've come out of nowhere and have no credentials, nobody knows who you are. And by this, I'm talking about non-narrative nonfiction. When it's narrative nonfiction, like a memoir or whatever, it's, it's a different story. It's a little bit more like fiction. But when you're talking about sort of a self-help book or a medical book or um, a guide to health or anything along those lines, it's who's writing it that matters as much, if not more, than the content. And so that's where platform really does come into play. And it's for that that Steve's advice is speaking to, that you want to build your platform as you're writing the book or find a way to get that feedback to know that to make sure that you can deliver what your audience wants. Because nonfiction is the non-narrative nonfiction is the hardest type of book to sell unless it's speaking to a specific audience that's already there and waiting for it. And and there are a lot of different ways you can build the audience. I threw out set up a blog because it costs nothing to set up a blog and to begin writing it. It also costs nothing to begin if you're comfortable in front of a camera to be to set up a YouTube channel and start talking about what you're interested in and just seeing if your message resonates with people. Um, any of these things, I mean, it can be a podcast. I've, I've had a lot of people suggest to me that I write a book about the author business because of the author biz and, you know, different business strategies for becoming a successful author. I know that if I wrote a book like that, I'd sell more copies than writing a, a novel that's the first in a series. I know that I'd sell more because I have a platform for that. I don't have a platform for selling fiction. This is true. Um, uh, but one one side note to all of this is mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter what your choice of trying to um, gain interest. Everything requires a lot of work. Yes. To build a podcast requires a lot. To build an audience requires a lot of work. To blog and build a blogging audience that matters requires a lot of work. So it's not something that can just be done in a couple of months. It's sort of a long-term strategy. With that being said, though, that building a, blog, a blogging audience when you're writing a book, you're killing two birds with one stone, so to speak, yes. because you're writing the book and you're, you're sort of writing it in real time or you're experimenting with it in real time. So you're, you're doing two things at once. So that makes the most sense to me for something like this. But it is really hard because you'll, you'll be five weeks into this and you'll be so excited when someone other than your mother makes a comment on a, on a blog post. Yes, and, and so like you're saying, Killing two birds with one stone, that is a good productive use of your time. But if you find yourself trying to video blog or 
do some other thing as a way to generate interest in what you're doing, you may find that instead of writing, you're spending all your time trying to generate interest in the thing that's supposed to generate interest in your writing. Yes. So you have to keep all of that in mind. Um, in this case, the book is, um, I think, I believe, I think already written. written. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So all of this advice is sort of a little bit too late, but we, I think we should still put it out there because, no, there are many people who listen to this podcast looking for advice, and that's the direction we would point them if, if nonfiction is the direction you want to go. And the reason we have a number of people listening to the podcast now is because we've been doing it for a long time. When we Over first started years. this, no one was listening. I mean, you know, there, there were the, the hardcore Taylor fans that were listening, and a lot of them, God bless you, are still listening, and we love that. But it, it has taken a while to build an audience of writers. And, and if, we had, if we had gone into this thinking, oh, we're doing it specifically because we're going to try and sell a book. I mean, of course, when we started, we did it a little bit as a promotional idea for The Mask was coming out at the time. But we continued with it because it was fun and we enjoyed it and because it was helpful to people. And we got good feedback from those that we were helping. And it was a way of giving back. But if we had gone into it thinking, oh, this is going to you know, help us sell or help me, I guess, sell a bazillion books, then we would have gotten disappointed and discouraged and just quit a long time ago. So that's just some perspective on it there. All right. Let me, let me throw out some really specifics. And, Taylor, I'm going to ask you because we can compare and contrast a lot uh, with specifics to answer James' question. Let's just this is the second question? No, no. This is, this is the first question. And okay. let's just assume the book is written and it's ready to go to editing. Um, if I were going to look for, if I, I'm an indie author, if I were going to look for an editor, I would look for other indie published books that have done well in my field, look in the dedication or the acknowledgments and see who the editors were. And I would contact one of those editors. I would also expect to pay for, uh, and I think 60,000 words is probably a good word count um, for a nonfiction book like this, a self-help type book. I would expect to pay somewhere between $600 and $1,000 for a content maybe slash copy edit type thing. Taylor is at a completely different level. Her books are longer than that. But if you were, if you were going to indie publish a book and look for an editor, what would you expect to pay, Taylor? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, and so much of it goes back to what's my end game, you know, what? Yes. because, you know, I, I know that to get the quality of editing that I'm used to getting. And that your readers is, are used to seeing the finished product for. Yes. If to get that, I'd probably end up paying about $5,000 for a hundred to 110,000 word book. Um, but it's there would not be any copy editing in it. It would, but it would be multiple back and forths and rounds of you know big picture. Then it narrows in a little bit more. Still have a few more quibbles. So I'm guessing maybe three or four revisions. Um, but if I was planning to indie publish the book, I don't know that I would expect to ever really make a return on that money. It would be sort of just out there. So. 
I would, unless I had a book that I really had a super great plan and knew it was going to sell and, you know, we were geared up and I'm looking at, okay, if I, you know, can sell this many copies, we're going to break even, whatever. Mathematically, you look at the numbers, it might be worth it, but probably not. And so I would go a step down and um, there, I, I mean, I have other friends and connections. That's how I would find them as I just start asking around um, who you use that you're happy with, because I know their quality of writing. I know what they would consider to be good. They've, they've walked this walk too, and they know the difference between, and I, I would expect to pay about maybe $1,500 for what I would consider to be satisfactory enough, not a Cadillac, but Definitely enough to get me there in one piece and not look crappy along the way. Okay, let's talk about proofreading because proofreading, it's it's really hard to find a good proofreader. There are. And a, by this you mean copy editor? No, I mean an actual proofreader, the last person okay. that goes through and reads the manuscript. Um, it's it's really hard. They're not super expensive generally. Um, you might spend a couple hundred dollars to get someone who's pretty good to go through and, and proof the manuscript. And that's, you know, that's proofreading. That's looking for the and, and, or the uh, story instead of store. You know, I went to the right. story, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, you might spend a couple hundred dollars for that, but it's incredibly important. And you can't expect the copy editor to do that because that's not what they do. They don't see those things. Right. And that can be also something where if you're trying to save some money and you've got some people who are fans because you've written blog posts or they've read other books of yours or just friends that are English majors, have them read it and and go at it. And if you're self-publishing, go at it with the expectation that it's not going to be perfect, but getting the book out there is better than not getting the book out there. And it's really easy to update a book. So yeah, that's the difference between self-publishing is that if somebody points out to you that you've got errors in it, you can just change it. Yes. And I have you know, seen, a, I've seen in the back of books uh, where people will say, if you find an error, email me, here's my address and I will be forever grateful. Just making it perfectly clear that I'm not going to be offended. If you, if you email me a typo, I know there are typos in here. Help me clean it up for the next reader. That's brilliant. I mean, that's what I would do too. Even, you know, from my perspective is I would go to my fans. I, I do get emails fairly often from fans and readers offering to, like in response to emails that I've sent out about copy editing or, you know, all this type of conversation, you know, I, uh, letting me know their credentials and saying that, you know, I'm qualified. So if you ever need an extra set of eyes, I'd be happy to put them towards your work. So if I was in a position where I wanted to indie publish or needed to indie publish, then that's the route I would go also for um, proofreading would be to go to my fans. Okay. And James's second question, I think this is the one you were getting at earlier, is please can you share an experience about where to get a professional proofreader, editor, copy editor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that does a good job or meets market standards. And we talked a little bit about that earlier, the, the idea of going into books that, that you've enjoyed and, and you know have respect for and finding out. If, if it's not listed, contact the author. They'll be happy to tell you. Um, I, I, would I think even even more for like for someone like me who doesn't have an opportunity to read a lot, mm -hmm. I would go the route of um, Facebook groups yes. or um, just circles of friends and ask for referrals. And 
not just take the first referral that came. Um, when somebody gave me a referral, then I would go look up and see what it was that they had done, sort of gauge the quality of the work of the person that they are referring. Yes. Um, you can join the AuthorBiz Facebook group. These questions come up a lot in the AuthorBiz Facebook group. There are other groups online. Um, I would go somewhere. I would not go into a, into a really big group with a lot of fiction authors because you're going to get a different kind of an answer there. Um, but if, if you can find some groups where nonfiction authors hang out, I'm, I'm certain that you could find good answers there. Um, it's fairly standard for editors to offer a sample edit for free so that you can see the quality of the work. And I didn't know that. And whether Are or you not talking you about editors or copy editors? Editors. Um, well, okay. I mean, in, in the indie world, I mean, edit, it's like that, that's mostly probably content editors as opposed to copy editors. But a lot of people okay. do the same. I mean, they, they do content and copy together. Okay. And so, yeah, experiment. One of the things I've, I've interviewed a few different editors on the author biz, and if I can remember to do it, I'll put links to those uh, interviews in the in the show notes. But one of the things that's really important, and that they've that I've heard over and over again, is you need to find the person that you can work with because it's easy. You you want to you want to understand what they're telling you. Um, it. They might soft pedal something and you think, oh, they're saying this isn't a problem, but it might really be a problem. Or they might right. be really harsh in saying something and, and maybe you're not a person who takes criticism that well. And so you, you want to find the right person. And that's the reason for these uh, freebie edits that, that people do. Oh, that's very clever. And they're, most of them are happy to do it. It'll say that on their website. But what Taylor said about finding, finding people on Facebook, you know, go inside, the, inside closed groups where people are, are more willing to talk about things and ask your questions. And uh, I, I think you'll, you'll get some really good recommendations. Yeah, I agree. All right, Taylor. That's it. We're, we're done. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm going to ask you about like the call I, to action, but I'm afraid to. Yeah, you should be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> uh, no, it's funny. He's like, this This is a normal length podcast, but it feels so short because we've been doing these long, hour long recordings the last few days. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is it. And we've actually really done our job here. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This is a pretty meaty show. And um, yeah, I mean, if you think this feels, if you think it, recording an hour show feels like it takes a long time, try editing the hour shows. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Call to action. This gentleman found you through your email list. He was not a podcast listener. He found you no. through your email list, and he found this wealth of information, wealth of publishing information that you share through your list. How can people, if they're not on your email list, how can they subscribe? It is at my website. There's a contact button, a connect with me button. So the website is www.taylorstevens.com books.com and there's a uh, that little button or if you can't find that or because it's not a very mobile friendly page i'm sorry i do need i'm working on figuring out how to get that changed um there's a contact us tab and the same information should be there all right so thank you all for listening sorry we have only audio this week i think next week we might be <laughs> back with video again i'm not sure that's the plan <laughs> all right thanks for listening <laughs> we'll everybody thanks for being with us see you next week